Welcome to the Oil and Gas DEI Podcast, where we explore the energy industry through the lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Listen to top leaders from around the world share their experience and insights for building a more inclusive and diverse workforce. Now, here's your host, Kim Ali. Welcome back to the DEI and Energy podcast. And I am so excited today because I am speaking to a representative from Baker Hughes. And I will tell you why I'm excited because they are becoming a regular on the show. This is actually the third interview that I have had with someone from Baker Hughes. And today we are going to be speaking to the lovely Nicole Durham, who is the Chief Cultural and DNI Officer at Baker Hughes. And Nicole, welcome to the show. I am thrilled to have you here. And if you could just share with the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, thank you first for having me, Kim. I'm really happy to be the third person from Baker Hughes to speak with you. This is very exciting for us. I came into the energy industry quite some time ago. Back in 2004 is when I started in my work in energy, and I started out as more of a technical person focusing on management information systems and auditing, interface testing, all sorts of fun stuff like that. And then I had some wonderful experiences throughout my career that enabled me to navigate my way across HR operations, finance, and ultimately landing in DEI work, which is really aligned with my passion and where I feel like I can be very impactful for organizations. On a personal note, I'm very busy. I have three sons. Their ages are 14, 12, and 8, and they keep us on our toes and keep life a bit of a rodeo. Oh, wow. Well, I have the utmost respect for working moms. I don't have any children and I'm already stressed. So I can only imagine (laughs) what it's like holding a corporate C-suite position and having a family. So kudos to you. With that being said, Nicole, let's dive right into it. How do you approach the unique challenges of integrating DE&I across diverse cultural landscapes in a global company like Baker Hughes that has over 55,000 employees? How do you approach that? Yeah, it's certainly complex, but I think the complexity brings so much opportunity at the same time. I remember when I joined Baker Hughes back in 2021 in March. My first kind of 30 to 60 days, one of the things that I was most impressed by was the cultural diversity of the company and not just statistically operating in over 120 countries, but I learned that we have a beautiful tapestry of rich cultural diversity in our people. And I was really excited about how authentic and real our international presence is. And I seized it or saw it as an immense opportunity to say, how can we galvanize and leverage those perspectives of our diverse population, right? Right from the get-go, I believe we have an inherent competitive advantage by having such a large global workforce. Now, the complexity is how do you take advantage of that and harness those diverse perspectives? That is where I point to two things. So one is always being an active listener. No matter what seat you're sitting in, no matter what your title, your level is, the work has to start with listening to employees, understanding 
their experiences, what's needed, what are the challenges, where are the opportunities. And in this work of leading DEI and focusing on culture for the company, it's important to have the pulse of the organization, right? To understand where people are needing the most attention, how do we prioritize and balance those needs appropriately, and doing it from a regional basis around the globe and making sure that we have, I call it a strategic framework for DEI. And that brings me to the second piece that's most important. And I would speak to the audience in terms of no matter what organization you're in and what aspect of the energy industry or not, it always starts with listening. And it, the second piece is aligning your DEI strategic framework to the business strategy. Importantly, we focus on five, what I call strategic goals. And those five strategic goals are what keep things exciting for me and my team. And it's starting with making sure that we build and retain a diverse workforce, making sure that we're developing cultural norms, behaviors, habits that drive an inclusive culture or an inclusive workplace. And thirdly, making sure that we are leveraging and partnering with a diverse array of suppliers. And we'll talk more about that, I'm sure, later. The fourth being making sure that we have strong partnerships in the community and how do we make sure that we are being good, I call it global corporate citizens, making sure that we're leaving communities in which we live and work better for us having been there. And then the fifth one is, which I'm excited about a lot of work that we've done recently, is developing really strong partnerships with our customers and our other partner channels to make sure that the way in which we do this work it can be scaled and that we're making sure we're partnering with those who share our values. I would think about the starting point for managing through the complexity of our size, over 55,000 employees in 120 countries, is listening and having a strategic approach to the work. Mm, I love that, Nicole. And those are very strong values. And as you said, hopefully we get to speak more about the supplier diversity component, because as an entrepreneur, I would love to hear more about that aspect. All right. So how has DE&I evolved in the energy industry, say, over the last 12 years? And how has Baker Hughes stayed ahead of these changes? Yeah, and it's a great question. And I think about being in energy as a place that's incredibly dynamic, fast paced, and you never know when the direction or the speed and pace of change might change or be accelerated. And that's also very exciting, but it requires us to stay very diligent, stay ahead. And when I think back over the last 12 years, as you said, I was reflecting on that and thinking, you know, maybe even a little bit more now, but any company's work in this space has been impacted by macro events. So you take macro events that affect the globe as it relates to things like the COVID pandemic. So how does any organization have to be able to pivot and leverage technology quickly, but that changes a whole lot of practices as an organization. And it has implications on things like culture and DEI. So we could talk more about those examples. But I think macro, we just weathered that. And even before that, when I think about this work, there was the viral movement of the Me Too movement that happened in 2017. And what does that mean implication-wise for large organizations and corporations? And following or during the pandemic, we also had what I call the death of George Floyd movement and how that spawned a lot more interest from the investor community to hold 
corporations and organizations accountable for ensuring, I would say, the word equity came about much more so on the surface of is there equitable opportunity within organizations for advancement of all people, all backgrounds. And then you saw that connect into greater expectations for transparency and good stewards to drive for sustainable practices through ESG. What I would say is all of those are macro, but within that macro environment, you have energy transition and you have different competitors coming into the landscape. You have political influence activities and different activist groups. And your charge, Baker Hughes, has this ambition to be a leading energy technology company. And we're doing that in the midst of all of that happening. How do you shape a culture to be able to have resilience to weather all those kinds of examples of dynamics that every organization is facing and at the macro level. But then at the micro level, you're seeing a lot happening in oil and gas with maybe it's mergers or consolidations or maybe some disruptors coming into the industry that we didn't see on the horizon 10 years ago. How do we stay nimble? And that's the question that leadership and I'm asked and our team is asked to stay. how do we stay ahead of the curve and make sure that we are resilient and that we're creating a culture where people feel like there is immense opportunity to grow and to develop. And I think when we think about all of those examples of change over the past dozen years or so, it's much more competitive and difficult to have that stickiness factor because one of the things that came out of COVID and the hybridity of work today that probably was more of a disruption or a factor for a traditional oil and gas business or for our energy technology spanning multiple industries, our business is the ability to get a new job very easily. And I always say starting a new job essentially means you ship in one laptop and then you receive another in some ways. You get your new laptop and your setup, maybe at your work home location, and that was your new job process. The competition for talent has intensified in that there's a lot more global mobility than we ever had. So how do we leverage that challenge and convert that into an opportunity to say, well, now we can reach more sources of global talent than we ever have before. And this works specifically. The beauty of that is we've also been able to tap into greater groups of people for work that maybe we hadn't historically been able to do as well. Like individuals with disabilities and how technology and hybridity and the virtual workforce has helped us to bring in and retain more employees and individuals with disabilities. So that's one of those silver linings is we're able to capture more of that market of talent Mm. and bring those perspectives to bear. And it's through technology that we're able to kind of continue to scale that. Yes, yes. And that is the perfect segue into our next question. What role does technology play in advancing DEI efforts, especially on a company that within a company that operates on a global scale? For example, AI, you mentioned the difference between disruptors and opportunities, but how does technology play a role in DEI? Yeah, some of the things that we've been working on, and I'm proud to say have been really immensely helpful, is challenging ourselves to understand how can we leverage technology to, as I mentioned before, ensure accessibility to more potential candidates. We're implementing diversity-focused tools in our talent acquisition area to do better at unbiased recruitment. So how can we leverage technology to help us 
de-bias our job descriptions and essentially cast a greater, I guess, pool of talent or reach a greater pool of talent. A lot of times, really large organizations, we can tend to not stay ahead of looking at our traditional job postings or our specs for a role. And it's important that we've been going through this continuous exercise to say, what's really needed for this job? What type of credentials are really needed for this job? How much education is really needed for this role? And challenging ourselves to say, if we want to have a different mix of perspectives, might we look at the background that were traditional requirements and maybe broaden that? Maybe you don't have to have specifically this type of university track. Maybe we can pull from trade schools. Maybe we can reach into different sources of talent and looking at how to diversify that and challenge ourselves to make sure we're casting the widest net possible and leveraging technology to do that has been really helpful. Another example I'll share is leveraging our virtual platforms for greater collaboration with employees globally. I'm sure many organizations are using things like we use Microsoft Teams, but how do we connect through our virtual platforms for information sharing, for creating communities of engagement in a virtual way? And you mentioned AI, and I think that's a great one. It's great and scary at the same time. I'm excited about what we will see AI bring to bear that's good and immensely helpful. But I think we have to also remember that depending on how the AI is developed, there could be some inherent biases built into the AI. We have a responsibility, my team and I, to be thinking about things like that as we venture into using more tools like AI. How do we make sure that it's set up and continues to iterate and evolve in a way that ensures there's equity in the AI thinking, so to speak? So we're looking at that right now to further assist with de-biasing our recruitment process. Mm, That was actually a question I had for you. I noticed you said you are using a tool for your recruitment practices. Does that tool have some component of AI in it? Right now we're exploring that, but I would say the early tool we've been using now is really about scanning for words that are not necessarily needed in a job description Mm -hmm. and pulling those out that might be limiting, helping to make sure that if there's things in our job descriptions that might've been a field position that said you needed to lift X amount of weight, pounds or kilograms, is that really needed or necessary? How can we make sure that we're pressure testing those to be the right requisites for a role? And what we see is even when you're posting jobs online today, The way in which you post those for opportunities, it matters so much because it will determine applicants who apply. And what you see from data is that you might end up losing more women in the application pool than is necessary if you're really, truly looking at the criteria of the role. We also see that with whether a role is required to be in person five days a week. We know we have more female applicants If there's a hybrid option to that role, maybe it's three days a week. We're continuing to get smarter about Mm -hmm. how we can do that. But Role Mapper is a tool that we've been using to assist Role Mapper. Okay. Okay. Thank you for sharing. I'm sure the listeners would love to investigate it to see if it will be useful for their recruitment and retention efforts. So thank you. All right. In your view, how does fostering a culture of innovation contribute to Baker Hughes' DEI goals? 
Yeah, I love this question because I think about why this work is so important. And fortunately, in 2023, I would like to believe most organizations today understand that a diverse workforce and an inclusive culture is not just the right thing to do, but it offers you a competitive advantage. And having done this work for over a decade, I remember a lot of times the work was starting with the business case for why it's important, but we've seen maturity in that and the realization that most organizations have a desire to be innovative and that innovation comes from new ideas. (laughs) And if you remain in an echo chamber where you don't allow new ideas to come in and it's old ideas bouncing all around that chamber, you're less likely to be innovative. And I think the secret sauce today is less about having a diverse workforce and more about how to leverage the diverse perspectives Mm. of that workforce to bring about new ideas so that you can drive innovation. And innovation is a tricky thing. It's elusive. And sometimes it sounds big when it can actually be small process improvement, efficiency gains. But what we're experiencing today is how do we make sure that it starts with our values? So our values at Baker Hughes, and I'm sure you heard this from our two previous speakers, but we have four core values. It's grow, collaborate, lead, and care. And I center a lot of our work around care as a starting point. I want to make sure that we're fostering the culture and the behaviors of our leaders and managers day to day to make sure that employees know that we care and that they're valued. And from there, once we lay that foundation, it's a lot easier to have people speak up and be willing to share their ideas, starting with your valued and your perspective matters, no matter where you sit in the organization, no matter what chair you're sitting in, I can be better if I hear your perspective. We're doing a lot of work around making sure in the midst of all those things we talked about at the front end with the macro environment and the micro environment and all the changes in volatility and uncertainty of our industry, in spite of all of that, how do I convey as a people leader that each member of my team is valued for what they bring and contribute? Mm. If I can create that sentiment for my whole team and also make sure that I'm creating an environment. We talk a lot about, I loved your background focusing on well-being. We're talking a lot about well-being and psychological safety today. And that if we can keep psychological safety levels high, people will feel more secure. People will feel willing to be a little bit vulnerable because raising a new idea is taking a risk. And if your organizational culture isn't such that you will feel valued or respected at a minimum for bringing a new idea to the table, then we're going to be pretty stifled in driving innovation. So I think it's a partnership between our work in the DEI space and the culture work that we're doing, but also across the aisles and partnering with our well-being leaders and how do we make sure that all of these things are working hand in hand so that we do foster that environment day to day, whether you're in the field, in a physical office, or you're in a hybrid role and you're working virtually but you feel connected, you feel like you are in a safe place that something as simple as raising your hand, sharing an idea, throwing something on the table will be valued and appreciated. I love that, Nicole. And I just want to go down a different road for a minute because you're being modest. I remember when I was reading the annual report and Baker Hughes, and we're talking about innovation, right? This is what the focus of this question is. 
Baker Hughes has, and Nicole, help me out here, but these are uniforms designed for male and female. And so that way, when people are out on the rigs or in the field, it's a lot easier to use the restroom. It's something as simplistic as that right. can make a world of a difference for your employees. It, it's great for listeners to hear that when everyone comes to the table and feels safe, they're able to share their ideas without the fear of retaliation. So I just wanted to mention that. (laughs) I love that you raised that example. And one of the things I'm proud of is that the idea across the industry, recognizing that simple things as field uniforms and what you have to wear from a safety standpoint might not be a one size fit all. So we might have to make some adjustments. So we have our Women's Network Employee Resource Group and partnership of the Parenting Tribe is another community of interest group where ideas were generated. And through those safe communities and information sharing, there was suggestions and support from leaders to say, let's reevaluate. And these are small adjustments. And how can we make sure that the required day-to-day field uniforms are going to be suitable for all employees? And it's one of those things where that's a great example of innovation. It wasn't rocket science, but right. how much does that change your daily experience if yeah. you're on a labor in the field and yeah. it's much easier to use the bathroom and you're properly fitted, so to speak. That was one that we told the story in our DEIN report for Baker Hughes last year. Yeah, yeah, I remember reading that. Yeah. <laughs> I would also share that was a great grassroots, a great grassroots kind of initiative that was led by employees speaking up. Mm-hmm. and having the support of leadership. We also have 17 global innovation and education centers around the globe in a more formal way to drive for innovation and idea sharing. And I have seen some fantastic initiatives and programs sprout because we've empowered our employees on a local level to bring new ideas forth and then provide support for that. And one of them is in our Florence office in Italy, and it's called AIR. And it's an experience where you will go into this immersive experience for a few hours and it's supposed to almost emulate what it might be like to experience difference or maybe experience what it's like to have a disability and have to navigate something day to day. But the idea is that if you go through this immersive experience for a few hours, that leaves an impression that will then go forward with you when you're done and it will change the way in which you view the world, so to speak. It gives you a new lens to think about being in the shoes of someone else. Very super innovative idea that comes from empowering and giving people the trust Mm. and the support to work towards cultivating a more inclusive culture. I always say our work, as in my team and I, one indicator of success is when you have a culture where this isn't just an HR functions area's work or DEI team's work. You see it happening and that's an indication of it being embedded in the fabric of our work. Wow. I love that immersive experience. And you said it's only in Italy right now? Yes, it is only based in Italy. And there's been talk about expanding it to different regions. I love that. I love that. I mean, that's something that could be beneficial for any industry, because not only do you see the world from a different lens, but it increases compassion for people who either don't look like you or maybe are disabled. So I love that. Nicole, lastly, what advice would you give other senior leaders who aspire to lead DEI efforts within their organization, especially in an industry that historically has not been diverse? Yeah, what advice would I give? The good thing is, as I'm meeting with more and more 
of my peers within the industry, I'm really inspired about, I do think it's becoming more prevalent and easier to focus on this work. So I will say that. And if you're starting in an organization where maybe it's not a focus today, I would encourage you one to reach out to people like myself and everyone I've spoken with and my peer group are always willing to share and connect, share best practices, share learnings. And you can do this work without any formal title. If you're interested in starting to create some sort of focus on DEI in your organization, you can do it from the chair that you're sitting in today. And I always say, start where you are. Understand your company's starting line. Understand the diversity of your business, your organization. Understand your business strategy and where you want to go and how you can leverage a diverse workforce and an inclusive culture to do that. And you might not underestimate the power of one. You have one and then you create followership and then you have more energy. But from a formal standpoint, I would remind people that DEI is not just activities and it's not just goodwill. It's really a strategic competitive advantage. Moving away from simply recognizing cultural heritage months or networking of employees and doing that with very clear plans of attack to help the business. And I think that's what's helped to garner more respect for our employee resource groups as they step into solving real business problems. You might start with talent acquisition and recruiting and having your employee resource groups support those events, but you also might say, hey, we have a real challenge with looking for innovative technology in a business area. Pick something of substance that you want to bring diverse perspectives to bear and look for a senior leader who's willing to go on the journey with you and sponsor and extend their, I would say, cachet or credibility to you and your asks. That will really help to catapult if you're starting small. I would say if you're starting bigger, mapping out what are your key priorities for your organization in terms of a DEI strategy to the business priorities. You think across several horizons. Right now, we're very focused on three-time horizons. So the initiatives that we might stand up for Horizon 1, which is by 2025, might be different and likely should be different than Horizon 2 and Horizon 3. And I've also found, going back to the listening piece, if you can leverage any sort of survey tools, it doesn't have to be the whole kitchen sink engagement survey. It might be a pointed three to five question survey. It can be a pulse survey that you do maybe every so often, every couple of months, every quarter. But we do leverage our culture and inclusion survey annually to really hear the voice of our employees, because sometimes we might see that what's needed is different than what we thought. And they could actually be easier to address than some of the bigger things we might have been chewing on when you're not going directly to employees. And that's anonymous surveys, right, Nicole, to increase engagement? Yes. We only report out on results in aggregate, and we make sure that they're confidential. And we can compare and really diagnose what some of the challenges are from a global region standpoint. We can do it from a business department standpoint. We can do it from a gender standpoint. We can look at from a people of color standpoint. So you can really get precise. Mm -hmm. And that's driven subsequent year initiatives. I know for our LGBTQ plus community, we were seeing some results that were very unique to that community. And we were able to pull together our employee resource group called Pride at Work 
and develop some solutioning sessions to say, how might we address this? Mm-hmm. Yes, I love that. You know, I always say data does not lie. <laughs> yes, I love that. And to that point, one of the things I learned most recently or was reaffirmed for me last week when I was in London was the importance of acknowledging and hearing employees' perceptions of one thing, but also confirming whether or not that to be true with data and how do I make sure I'm sharing with Lorenzo, our CEO, and his leadership team both. Here's employee sentiment and perception, and here is the data. Mm -hmm. And then are those conflicting or are they aligned? And then most importantly, how do we go back and communicate that to employees? Here's how we round out both. I respect feedback and I acknowledge your sentiments. And here's what the data is showing us. And then inform, inform and monitor. So I was reminded of that important point of data last week. Yes, yes. I'll say this one because I could talk days about this. But the thing is, I know a lot of companies or leaders might be reluctant to collect that data because now that you have the facts, what are you going to do about it? It's one thing to get the information, but you have to act on it. And that's the hard part. Yeah. When I first joined, I remember talking to our CEO about this work takes courage. This Mm -hmm. work takes courage and it takes vulnerability. And I was really inspired by his conviction to wanting to get this right and wanting to be a leader for DEI, not just in our industry, but beyond. And that takes a lot of guts. And if you are willing to start to look at the data, you might see some things you don't like, but that's like saying, I'm not stepping on the scale, but I have a goal to lose weight or to gain weight wherever you are. But if you don't step on the scale, you don't know where you're starting. So it's like, you have to lift up the hood and have a look what's going on before you can truly make meaningful, sustainable progress. And one thing that's helping with that, I would say is going back to ESG and companies being required to more standards and expectations and having to be much more transparent. So this call for greater transparency is another lever that, especially in the social pillar, where we're asked to report out and disclose more things than we have in the past. And I think in some ways it can be liberating. Let's just rip the bandaid off and say, this is where we are. If we're not proud of X metric, I don't know what that might be for any organization, but it's better to have a starting line and say, from here, I will improve it. And looking at the data, the work is in what are the factors, the initiatives, the programs, the accountability processes that are going to move that metric. Right. Not just admire the metric quarter over quarter, but how do we go do the work to move that metric? Yes. And you know what? I'll just summarize what you said earlier because you said it perfectly. Every challenge is an opportunity. If you don't like what you're seeing, that's a great thing because there's an opportunity to make it better. With that said, Nicole, I'm always so impressed with Baker Hughes whenever I talk to (laughs) individuals from the company. But with that being said, how can the listeners keep in touch with you? Do you have any events that you would like to share? You know what? I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So I would encourage listeners to reach out to me, send me a note, connect on LinkedIn. I'm happy to have new followers and also start following new people across the industry because a lot of information sharing is powerful. And I don't have any events planned at the moment, but I will use LinkedIn for that sharing as well. 
Perfect. All right. Well, I know you and I are already connected, so I will be on the lookout for any news that you are sharing. And in the meantime, remember, diversity is not a buzzword. It is a key driver of innovation and growth. So let's keep the conversation going by sharing our stories and building an equitable energy industry together. Until next time, stay curious, stay open-minded, and stay tuned for more DNI insights. And Nicole, again, it was a pleasure having you, and I look forward to seeing all the wonderful work Baker Hughes will continue to do. See you next time, everybody. Thank you so much. Come back next week for another episode of Oil & Gas DEI, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.